You're listening to TFM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Hey, everyone. I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. Hello and welcome to TFM's Books and Comic Show, and we have a big show for you this week, and I'm so excited to have with me two phenomenal gentlemen to be able to talk about some great news and a good Star Trek book. Uh, Bruce Gibson, man, how are you doing, buddy? I'm doing good. I don't know. It's it's kind of warm in here. I don't know where if it is where you are, but I, it's it's a little warm. Maybe I'm just excited about talking about this stuff. I I mean, it could be uh, the fact that we're both you know sharing the screen right now with none other than Casey Pettit, and I don't know who is it hot in here. <laughs> I, I have that effect on Zoom calls, so <laughs> <laughs> you bring the heat on. <laughs> oh my goodness! Well, we're gonna bring the heat because we got some great news to talk about before we dive into our feature, as we're gonna be talking about the last roundup by Christy Golden. Before we get there, though, want to say huge thank you to everybody who's listening really appreciate it of course you can find us wherever you get your podcasts if you're on apple podcasts uh, or spotify now you can rate podcasts on spotify give us some stars people if you're listening over there uh same thing with uh apple podcasts you can also give us a review on apple podcasts as well and you know help people find the show uh and of course you could find us on twitter at trek fm we're on facebook at facebook.com slash trek fm we got the listeners only discussion group you can join and talk to listeners from all over the world trek.fm where you can see all of the shows we've got going on uh you know we've got a warp five and the orb back and we're we're really moving with those shows again too so so much happening here and of course um if you want to make sure that all of the shows keep coming to you each and every week. You can go over to patreon.com slash trekfm and become part of our team, like uh, the one and only Casey Pettit, as well as Greg Rosier, who are associate producers of Literary Treks, to make sure that this show keeps coming to you and the network. And as we hit 2022, just hitting the ground running, uh, we could definitely use your help. So go over to patreon.com slash trekfm. Well, it is no lie, guys. We got some serious news up in this place. And none other than the fact that we're going to be getting an audio drama set in the Picard universe here uh, with... None other than Michelle Hurd and Jerry Ryan returning uh, with uh, their voice talents as well as a full, again, full audio drama. So first, uh, i got to ask you guys, when you heard this news, were you excited? It's about time. <laughs> I've never heard any of the other, like I know there's other uh, audio dramas with other series, but uh, and and people have been hankering for this. But man, this is something I think that's been a long time coming. 
Simon & Schuster's finally got on the ball with doing audiobooks for all the new novel releases. And so now to get uh, an original audio drama like this that is uh, co-written by Kirsten Beyer, who is one of the uh, co-creators of Star Trek Picard. I mean, what more can you ask for? And, uh, you know, I just... we're going to have to listen to it before season two starts, uh, you know, I think a week or two later after this audio drama comes out. So super excited for sure. Oh, absolutely. I, you know, this is something I've been asking for, for a number of years because, you know, it just opens up so many possibilities. And so when you have a new series like this going on, you can fill in little blanks that you're not going to get in the show, just like the novels and the comics do. But now you can do it in an audio format using the actors from the show. But the potential of opening this this up to past series, you could do something Star Trek Enterprise with some of those actors or Deep Space Nine, Voyager, on and on and on. And I hope this really takes off because I'd like to see them even venture into those older series. But if they just mm-hmm. stay with the new ones, that's that's a plus too. Yeah, I 100% agree with both of you. I, I think this is phenomenal. Um, and, you know, I, you guys know, I, having KMFB back, I mean, it's it's fantastic. You know, I, I love Kirsten. So excited. You know, Mike Johnson, so good at so many of our Star Trek comics that we've read. And, I mean, I, I couldn't be more excited uh, you know, about this. I, I had to reach out to Kirsten the moment I heard it and just be like, yes, because this is this is really exciting. And this is really fun. Like you said, Bruce, filling in those little gaps like this is going to be something that's going to help with that relationship we saw with Seven and Nine and Rafi at the very end of Picard. And uh, kind of give them an adventure all on their own right after season one's conclusion and before we get into season two. So, I mean, this is the perfect way to get fans excited about season two of Picard, which I, I know we're all hoping is going to be good. So um, I do have to ask you guys a question because we got to rate uh, and and judge, a, I guess, an audio book by its cover. Um, and so what do you guys think of this one? I like it. I mean, because we have the two principal actresses on the cover and I'm trying to figure out what that thing, that symbol really is all about in the middle. Is that the uh, Fenris Ranger that's, symbol? That's kind of what I was thinking. Right. It might, I think so, because that is part of what the book is, you know? So, I mean, the last time I looked at an audiobook cover for Star Trek, it had Captain Sulu on it. So this is yeah. throwing me off quite a bit. <laughs> you know, I I think it's fine. Uh, I think it's decently arty. You know, I mean, they've they've given a kind of more artistic rendition of their faces, which, you know, you, it's easy to do in Photoshop. But, I mean, I wouldn't say it's overly exciting. Um, I think the biggest thing here is they want to promote the two main actresses that are back with their voice talents. And, and you know, I mean, that makes complete sense. Does it look like there's something behind them? It, it looks like there's so, like almost like a face behind them. Very faint, but it wouldn't make sense because you can't really see any of it. Almost looks like there's an eyebrow above Jerry Ryan's head. I don't know. There's, I feel like there's more questions than there are answers, but it's a, it's a decent looking <laughs> yeah. cover, you know. Maybe it's yeah. uh, Kirsten Beyer. There you go. Yeah, that's probably what it is. The the new that's great bird of is. the galaxy. 
(laughs) (laughs) Well, so we don't just have one book cover to judge. Uh, We also have Picard's second self novel that's coming out by Una McCormick, and they've released that cover as well. Um, And Bruce, before we get to that cover, can you give us the blurb for that, too? Following the explosive events seen in season one of Star Trek Picard, Rafi Musiker finds herself torn between returning to her old life as a Starfleet intelligence officer or something a little more tame, teaching at the academy, perhaps. The decision is made for her through a message from an old contact, a Romulan spy, is received asking for immediate aid. With the help of Elnor and assistance from Jean-Luc Picard, Rafi decides to take on this critical mission and quickly learns that past sins never stay buried. Finding the truth will be complicated and deadly. Bum, bum, bum. Bum. (laughs) (laughs) So first I got to ask you before we talk about the cover, like, she's busy after the first season. I mean, if she's going on vacation (laughs) with Seven of Nine and now this, it's like, how long is the time period between season one and season two? (laughs) That's a good question, right? <laughs> and and will either of these stories reference each other? That I'll be curious if this one, especially since it's coming out a few months after uh, the audio drama, if any of her other exploits with Seven, you know, or the Fenris Rangers, will be referenced at all. I, I'm assuming Una McCormick knew about that audio drama before anyone else, so that's exciting. I mean, and the cover itself is. You know, another kind of just promotional pictures kind of arted up, but there is kind of an interesting looking wormhole or something in the middle of it. Uh, you know, it's it's very in line with the newer covers lately. It seems like with the with the main the main characters kind of front and center mm-hmm. on this, although I guess the wormhole kind of thing is really the center. But, um, you know, just kind of giving everyone their face time on these books. Well, yeah, mm-hmm. and that. That thing in the back, which I think is a cosmic toilet flush, mm. is what. It oh looks yes, like to me. yes. Mm. It's it's blue, and that's my favorite color. So anytime blue's the prominent color on a novel, I just love. It's it. like that cleaning solution that you put in your toilet to <laughs> tidy bowl. <laughs> and you know, I, I think both of you said it so well. And you know, really, both of these covers are so similar in the sense that it is just basically artistic versions of promotional covers i mean it it's it's not exciting you know it, it i would say this you know unlike the cover for the book we're going to discuss in the last roundup which is a beautiful piece of art um with the 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 classic tos characters you know these just anybody who's decently good at photoshop could put these together and so you know when it comes to Selling a book, I mean, the reason you put their faces on there is you want people to be like, oh, you know, I mean, Picard's face sells books. We know that. Um, And, you know, you put, you know, Jerry Ryan's face or Michelle Hurd's face on there as well with the other. It's going to people are going to gravitate towards that. But otherwise, I mean, as a fan, it's kind of the same thing that I feel like with movie poster art. Like, I get really tired of promotional picture, photoshopped posters. I miss, you know, Drew Struzan type art type of thing. Or, you know, the cool book covers we used to get with, you know, Kevin, I think it's Kevin Birdsong. It, it, I think it was Keith. Keith Birdsong. Keith Birdsong. There you go. Yeah. yeah. You know, his artwork was phenomenal. Um, that kind of stuff. So, yeah, I mean... 
it it's fine. It is what it is. But I wouldn't say that this would get like my stamp of approval of like, oh, I'm so excited because I saw that cover. Yeah, it's more just exciting that there's a book at all. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, well, we have a quick. I, I just wanted to touch base with you guys because we got um, Mirror War. Uh, we got the Mirror War data issue, and then uh, issue three, and. I don't know about you guys, but I'm still kind of stuck in a rut with this series as to I don't really know where it's going. And I find myself a little bit frustrated in reading the series because I'm not really picking up on anything that gets me excited to continue to read it. Am am, am I way off base or I I don't know. What do you guys think? No, I I actually wrote in my notes. I'm so confused, <laughs> like especially in, in issue number three, because we got these two issues. The data one, actually, I, I feel like the data one by itself was okay. Um, it was a good story, and I actually feel like it would have been better like in the Prime Universe or, or whatever we're calling the, the literary universe, the comic universe, the non-mirror universe. Um, I, I think that would have been a fun adventure for Data and Barkley non-mirrored just because it would have added something a little bit to Barkley's character. But as as far as these mirror war stories go, once I got into reading issue number three, I I have no idea where that data story fits in because it's not referenced Mm -hmm. at all. It's and in fact, actually in, in issue number three, Barkley and data are still at odds with each other yet. They seem like they become friends in in the dated one. So I don't know. It's, you know, they're there, you know, like it's kind of ready for these ones to to kind of either find their story or conclude and let's move on to something else. Yeah. I mean, I, I failed at doing my homework because I haven't read these two <laughs> yet, but I'm looking through them as we're talking. And of course, I can't make any judgment calls just by looking through them. But I will say at the end of issue three, it kind of piques my interest of where it's going without reading the story, but seeing what other characters are going to be involved. So that gets me excited. But you know, the thing that really hits me and I, I would hate to, I hate picking on this, uh, but after reading Coda book three and going to the mirror universe, I like that representation of the mirror universe better than this version. Cause this is just a bunch of angry TNG mm-hmm. people. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting because this, this, almost feels like a prequel to what we see in the deep space nine series because this almost seems to be explaining how smiley ends up you know maybe on a completely different side possibly you know because he's left behind uh well he's not left behind brahms makes sure he's left behind he's left for dead really (laughs) yeah so I don't know. I I just I'm not sure how all this really plays out. And I think that's one of the things is this has felt so nebulous in its time frame for the mere universe. I don't know how this fits in with not literary canon stuff, but I don't know how this really fits in with the Star Trek canon of what's been on screen and where this is supposed to be. And I think that's one of the things that's really been throwing me off and seeing that in this I guess in the third issue made me think, okay, maybe that's what we're there doing. And I guess that would make sense because we never saw TNG 
And so this would be taking place before what we saw in Deep Space Nine, but I don't know. So I can't say the series has me super excited to continue with, you know, these issues because I just, I'm like you too, Casey. I like, I'm just kind of confused. <laughs> I'm so confused, man. Maybe I should just, I don't know. Uh, what's drink what's more beer. confusing? Is it the direction of the story or is the story itself confusing? I, I feel like it's the direction kind of, I mean, they've got this underlying story of going, and I can't remember the name of the race, but the, the shipbuilder race, the thaw, it starts with an F, I can't remember, but they're, they're trying to get to this shipyard basically, but now we're three issues in plus a zero issue and now a data one shot and we're no further along really in this than than anything else like this one was them sabotaging a cardassian listening post so that they could Mm -hmm. continue on their way like it did nothing for the story if if the story is getting to the shipyard i think you nailed it in the sense that the story needs to move forward like crazy in the sense like let's let's do something let's get somewhere where something makes this feel like we're on to the next level you know and so i think maybe once that happens it would get better but i don't know so well uh i don't know about you guys but i don't know let's round up the gang for one last go yeah so we're at the last roundup and there are plenty of books that kind of deal with the tos crew after the undiscovered country and one of the things that we do in this book that christy golden does is discovering the undiscovered in the sense that we kind of see where these characters are after that movie and 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 what they have been doing before we really dive into the story and so before we went anywhere else i just wanted to know what you guys kind of thought about her ideas of what these characters would be up to before we get into the meat of the plot made complete sense to me that some of them like spock and uhura and um and mccoy i think were all working in basically on furthering the Kittimer Accords and integrating the Klingon culture into the kind of feder or with the Federation culture, not really integrating them, but teaching each other, I guess, cultural exchanges. And I mean, that's like a direct uh, consequence or direct result of the events in Star Trek six. And I feel like you can't really have a follow-up to that movie without, you know, referencing that and to have Spock, so integral in that makes total sense since he was so integral in actually setting up the Kittimer Accords in the first place. So I actually, I, I really enjoyed that. The, the Uhura and the, the opera stuff was a little bit weird and quirky, but it was still kind of a fun little, um, you know, I mean, if there's going to be cultural exchanges, I mean, we know how how much the Klingons love their opera. So having Uhura involved in that actually made made total sense to me. Yeah, you know, there's some kind of sexual tension between her and this Klingon opera singer. I'm surprised Scotty didn't get jealous and start breaking into Klingon opera to impress her. But I mean, I like that. Like everything you were just saying, Casey, I like the whole thing of them working with the Klingons because, yeah, this takes place right after the undiscovered country. What I don't like is, well, I shouldn't say I don't like, well, yeah, I guess I don't like it. I don't like these things with Kirk. Yeah. You know, it's like I'm so tired of. Between the five-year mission and the motion picture, and then before the Wrath of Khan, and now this, we have Kirk pining over the whole idea. Mm -hmm. I really wish I were in space. I was 
wish I wasn't having a ground assignment, wish I wasn't teaching. And you'd think by this point in his career that and all the things that he's done that he can have a ship if he damn well wishes mm-hmm. to have one, right. you know, but it's always like, why is Starfleet always trying to remove him from space? Mm-hmm. If he always saves the galaxy. And I'm just, it sounds like the same rhetoric that he keeps complaining about that he was saying years ago. It's just same old thing over again. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I'm not blaming the author for that, but it's like, we keep putting him in that place. So obviously he has that response. <laughs> it's almost like he's Tevia from the fiddler on the roof but instead of singing if i were a rich man it's if i were a captain (laughs) anyway um sorry about that folks Uh, actually i'm not sorry why did i say that for singing it was great um we love but it. it it is like that bruce it it does feel like that i think the storyline i have the hardest part with is kirk for Kirk to feel like he's not good at anything but being a captain of a starship, like, a lot of what makes him a good captain are things that would be good to have in life, right? And would be good to have on a mission that we're going to get, you know, a, a, like, that he goes on with his nephews, you know, and all of that kind of, like, it just felt a little bit like we were trying to pigeonhole him and we needed him to feel like this for plot reasons more so than necessarily what I think would be the case. Um, and, I, you know, I thought, honestly, one of the most fascinating stories here that we don't spend a ton of time on was Chekhov trying to get a captaincy and not being able to get a captaincy because there isn't a ship available that needs a captain and not necessarily wanting to be a first officer again until at the very end of the book, you know, he becomes Sulu's first officer, which I was like, dude, now that would have been a cool show with, uh, you know, Sulu as captain, Chekhov as first officer. Uh, I thought that might be my favorite thing in the book, actually, it was just that one little thing at the very end where Chekhov becomes his first officer because it made so much sense for that to happen because they're the youngest of these two or, or of this group. You know, and for them to continue on with missions like this makes complete sense. There's a book or two or something, I, and I can't remember what it is, and maybe you guys know, but it, it has Captain Sulu with Chekhov as the first officer. And I remember explaining that Chekhov was, that Sulu's kind of protecting Chekhov and having him serve as his first officer because he Chekhov still had PTSD from the events of the eels in the ear the you know, the mm, bug in the ear from wrath of Khan and like affected his, it's a long you know, time PSD PTSD. So PTSD. Yeah. It had mm. a long-term effect or something like he was still dealing with some trauma from that. And this was like, he was still recovering or, and that's why he was serving as a first officer. I don't remember what book that was, but I recall a story like that. Mm. Would be interesting. And I'd love to see the buddy cop show with uh Chekhov and Sulu. Yes. <laughs> Yes. TJ Hooker. Yeah. Well, and I just, I guess kind of on that with where they all are, I guess one of the, the, the main thrusts of the plot becomes that, you know, Kirk's nephews are setting up a colony on this planet uh, with uh, these aliens that are actually trying to get into the Federation at the moment. Um, and, 
they've been given this planet they call Sanctuary, and they're going to bring all of these scientists there to kind of create almost like a commune of like-minded scientists working to, you know, better the galaxy. Um, and, you know, Kirk has his nephews talk him into this and, and somewhat guilt him into it as well. And so just with that is kind of a main storyline, too, of where we're going to take Kirk. I mean, how did, did that seem like a good way to kind of get him out of that? Honestly, like, I, I feel like if they had just either not had him as an instructor at the academy or something, maybe even he was just like bored in retirement, like, but, you know, still had to be convinced to go this thing. I, I think that would have been better because, um, you know, one of the things I noticed was that he he was very against going when his nephew showed up and, his, and they showed up at like midnight to his house to try to convince him to go. I'm like, you're never going to get a yes from somebody at that time. But um, eventually what what actually tipped him over to act to, to deciding to go was when that um, like mentee or advisee or the student of his scholarly like shows up that he's just so annoyed by her and she shows up and he's like, you know what? I think I'll go with my nephews. And I thought that just doesn't seem like Kirk to like decide to go be with family because he can't stand this other person. Like the, the, the impression I was left with that just, it didn't leave a good taste in my mouth, but I think him going and, uh, you know, ultimately deciding to go be with his nephews was, was a good decision. And I feel like it, it was something Kirk would have done just because he thought maybe there's an adventure there and, you know, seeing all the scientists that were going and everything and, it, you know, that he could make a difference. That's something Kirk always wants to do is he, he can make a difference and maybe he's not in a captain's chair or anything and his nephews are the ones in charge. But I feel like Kirk could have seen that, especially if he was going to convince uh, Scotty and Chekhov to go with him anyway that it might just be a fun adventure for him. They could go camping and singing and toasting marshmallows. I don't know. Like there's, you know, there's <laughs> lots of reasons to me. Can go. Yeah. Yeah. Why do they call them marshmallows? I don't know. I've never heard anybody <laughs> call them marshmallows, but I, was it, I don't know. was it a, like they couldn't call them mellows maybe because of like rights issues or I'll something. That's right. my, I, th- I think process. I did hear something like that once. It so, has to be, I don't yeah. know. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and then they made a machine that was in stores. Mm-hmm. You could actually pop yep. your marshmallow in it. <laughs> but yep. it pops out. Anyway, um, yeah, um, I don't – okay, so here we have Kirk in this situation, and he's teaching, and he's not having the adventure. I just think that, again, at this point in his career, and having done this kind of storyline before of Kirk's got this – earthbound job and he needs to be out there having an adventure it would have been great to have seen something like he's just on vacation for a little while because he's going to be assigned a new starship mm-hmm. you know because the enterprise was retired i don't recall them saying in the undiscovered country that the, all the officers are retiring right they're still working so he could be waiting for his new ship. It's not going to be ready until September. And he's like, great. Well, I got to sit around here for the next three months or five months, whatever it is, until my ship's ready. But here's this opportunity for an adventure in the meantime. You know, instead of having him feeling down and feeling useless, you know, have him excited for that next ride. But before it happens, here's this adventure where he can bond with his nephews. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because, like, I'm remembering the dialogue at the very end where in, in the Undiscovered Country, because Kirk says this ship and her crew will will soon be the the like property of another, you know, and so like the Enterprise wasn't necessarily being retired, but they were retiring. That was because you know, remember because. McCoy's like three months from retirement, you know. Scotty um, just bought a boat. Yeah, exactly. Which right. you know we spend time with Scotty on the boat. Doesn't go as great as he thought it was going to. Um, and but I I I do heartily agree with you, Bruce, because it did. And and Casey, I think you both bring up really valid points that it just feels so strange um, that Kirk would abandon these students because one of them is kind of annoying. Um, you know. I mean, I feel like Kirk would rise to the challenge to, like, take the annoyingness out of the student, you know? Um, and, and, and and just, like, specifically on that, you know, one of the lessons that he teaches them is that life isn't fair. And I really loved this lesson because I don't think we'd get this lesson anymore. But where he's talking about, you know, to his students about he's taken this on, on – he's taken them on this – really cool expedition to see this planet where a captain had made a Kobayashi Maru type of choice and trying to get them to see what it means to make these type of command decisions. And some students answer some questions of his and he gives them extra credit. And he says, the the rest of you will just have to work a little extra hard on your essays to make them even better. And one of them's like, it's not fair. And he's like, doesn't have to be. I'm the instructor and you're the students. You'll find out that a lot of this universe isn't fair, but it has to be dealt with nonetheless. That too is part of being in Starfleet officer dismissed. And it's just, it's such a great lesson, you know, for them to learn. It's like Kirk's actually a good teacher here too, you know? And so that to me, like, I love that he is trying to instill in them this lesson because, yeah, life's going to throw all sorts of things at you that you're not going to expect. I mean, was it fair that Kirk's son died at the hands of a Klingon? Nope. Does it matter? Nope. Does anybody care? Nope. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> y- y- you got to learn to live with life as it comes at you because it's coming at you fast. And that's a part of being in command and making these type of decisions. Well, and honestly, that's almost what Chekhov is kind of dealing with, like you were saying earlier. Like, he wants to be a captain, like, bad. Mm-hmm. And there's just nothing available. And he's deciding, well, do I want to be a first officer again? Should I just go do something else? And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm I'm sure Chekhov is even thinking this. This isn't fair. Like, I've been in Starfleet forever. And just because there's a ship that's not, there's no ship available, I can't be a captain. And, um. I mean, like you said, this is a, a lesson that I don't think everybody really gets uh, anymore these days. Like, you know, some people get opportunities, others don't. And, you know, we all have to work extra hard sometimes. And sometimes you're the lucky one. And, um, you know, and, and yeah, especially like you said, these um, this is this is the type of instruction I feel like Kirk is made for, you know, teaching these kind of command decision lessons and especially these hands-on ones for like these students getting to go on a field trip i bet you no other student you know at the academy that's not taking whatever class this is that kirk is teaching is getting to go to this planet or on a cool field trip with like a living legend that's not fair you know and so um you know i i think 
you know, he's he's a little cold in his uh, you know response to the students saying it's not fair. But at the same time, this is a lesson that they they need to learn earlier. Else, you know, once they get to these command decisions and they're trying to be fair to everybody under their command, that may not work out well for everybody. So I'm just wondering, what is the author trying to tell us in this story? That thing Starfleet isn't fair to Kirk either. Is that what's happening here? And is isn't fair to check off? Honestly, I bet it's I, what I got from it was it was setting up the decision at the end of the book. Um, but I, it could be, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I don't know. Yeah, maybe it's not fair that Kirk didn't. Does I mean, Kirk doesn't have a ship either. Chekhov doesn't have a ship. No one's got a ship. Where's Oprah when you need her? Except for Sulu. Oh, except yeah. for Sulu. <laughs> um. I, I, you know, I think what it feels like the story is trying to say is that life is going to continually throw you curveballs and you got to find a way to deal with it, you know? And I think like that seems to be almost the thing that Kirk learns by the end as he is getting ready to go, you know, send off the Enterprise B. And. Um, at, at the very end of the book, you know, it, he seems almost resolved to the fact of like, it, it, I've got to make something out of what, whatever I've got, you know, and this is the hand I've been dealt. And so what do I do with it? You know, and he could wallow in self-pity or he could find a way to make something of it. And to me, that's kind of what I got from, from the end of the book. I don't know. Are you guys on that same wavelength or what do you, what did you think, Bruce? Because that, uh, that's I'm where not- I came down. It is, but at the same time, I think like Casey mentioned earlier, it's, you know, he's, or maybe it was, it was you, Matt, I don't remember, but one of you said about how, you know, towards the end of the book, he's very much like, well, I was useless this whole time, right? Everybody did something and no one needed me. It's like the book ended to me as if saying that Kirk just didn't feel needed, you know, he just doesn't feel like he's of any use anymore. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to show him, oh, but we wouldn't be where we are if it wasn't for the things you used to do. <laughs> you know, you've inspired mm-hmm. us. Now you can go and retire and cause yeah, we've all figured out how to do things because you've taught us. I don't, I don't know. It's, and yeah, in a lot of ways you could say, well, it's not fair. You know, that's like his little message to the students. It just is what it is, right? You're just sent curveballs, and sometimes it's going to work and sometimes it's not. Well, and it is part of, I mean, and I think maybe this is also the lesson Kirk is learning is that this is part of getting older. You know, if you've done your job, you've trained the next generation to be taking over for you and you're not needed in the same way that you were before. But that doesn't mean you're not needed. Um, and so I, I think kind of coming to that realization is difficult for everyone. Right. You know, it's it's like. Um, I was just talking to uh, a friend the other day about, you know, football players that I kind of wish had retired um, before they did, you know, and it's like they still want to play. They can still play okay, but it probably would have been better for them to retire and just let it go, but they can't let it go. And Kirk is having that, I think, struggle of like letting part of his life go and looking towards the next part, you know? And so to me, I think that's kind of where the book is going now, I will say this. I don't think that it's necessarily done well. So you get to the end of the book and you're like, 
really like what that was saying the whole time and how it all connected together. This is not one of those books where I feel like all the thematic elements are working really well together. See, the only problem I have with the whole football player thing is that you want a football player to retire earlier than they did because their game isn't as good as it used to be. They've gotten older and they can't play as well. And maybe they should have left a little earlier than what they did. Mm -hmm. So, but I never get the feeling that at this point in Kirk's career, he's just not as good as he used to be. You know, I think he still has it in him. I think he could command a starship for at least another 20 years. Well, I mean, he, he absolutely could. Yeah. Well, and when it came down to that tough decision where they were likening it to this decision of this other captain from the, the uh, life isn't fair lesson, he actually, instead of destroying the colony, chooses not to. I mean, so that was his command. Like that was his command decision, his experience, and even his knowledge of this prior lesson that they learned, kind of all coming to fruition there. And really, if somebody else had gotten that same lesson from from the the captain on that other planet, they might have just hit that button, self destructed this whole colony, and been done with it. But it, you know, so. I understand Kirk feeling kind of aimless and seeing like, well, this person did this and this person did that. And I didn't do anything. Well, you, you actually did do something. You, you didn't destroy the colony when everybody thought that was the only choice available. And yeah, like it's that kind of command decision. And, and I mean, all the captains have to rely on their crew and granted, he's not like captain of this colony or anything like that, but he has to rely on other people to do stuff. And maybe, Maybe he as the captain has ideas, but maybe they're not the right ideas and somebody else has a better idea that's executed properly. But having that organization and leadership there is is what he can bring to it. And mm-hmm. I think yeah. on the colony, since his nephews were the ones who were in charge of it, and it, it totally graded at him that he couldn't, you know, he had to keep his mouth shut when they were negotiating or whatever. I mean, I feel like that's what it is, is that he's just longing for a command, but, and that's why he's feeling useless is because he's not able to just, Mm -hmm. you know, give orders out. One of the things, like, coming around to this, like, one of the the themes in the book is about, like, making tough choices, and that kind of ties into the lesson that Kirk's trying to teach his students, um, and when to act and when not to, you know, and, um, and... We see, you know, how Kirk's nephew kind of comes back at him by saying, like, you've broken rules all the time. And, you know, you're you're, uh, you know, uh, bending things and all that kind of stuff all the time. Like you're cheating death and he's throwing all these things in his face. And what I was picking up is, is what his nephew wasn't realizing is that every time that Kirk Except for the Kobayashi Maru, every time Kirk in his command is breaking the rules or bending the rules or cheating death, he's doing it for the purpose of saving the universe and or other people. Like, it's not just about himself. Whereas what we see is that his nephew has done all this for him and his brother and not taken into account any of the consequences for his actions whatsoever and so it was it was really fascinating to me because it's like yeah it's about like learning to make tough choices but it's not about just breaking the rules to get ahead for yourself like that that's totally different thing 
Yeah, I mean, th- <laughs> I'm glad you brought up the nephews and breaking rules because Julius is probably one of my least favorite Star Trek characters. He was so annoying to me. Um, just just him going off on his brother Alex, and and then he, you know, makes this deal that involves the Orions and all that. Like he was just, it, he just made the wrong decisions. I mean. I, I liked him better once we figured all that out and he apologized for it. But I was just like, gosh, this guy just, I, I didn't like his attitude at the very beginning. And I mean, Kurt thought the students, Scott, Ali or whatever her name is, was annoying. I thought Julius was more annoying than she was. But um, yeah, I mean, that's the whole thing about breaking the rules. I mean, it's, you know, I, I'm, I, you know, if you rob a bank, that's breaking a rule, but it doesn't mean it's right. You know, they need to understand that, like you said, it's, you know, trying to save lives or doing the right things. You might have to bend the rules to get there, but not break them and without understanding the consequences and what you're getting yourself into, like Julius was. And did they ever explain why the Orion Syndicate or whatever wanted Kirk there? Because... Julius and Alexander are trying to like heavily persuade Kirk to volunteer to come, but then, and then he finally does, Mm -hmm. but then they act like, well, Julius acts like he doesn't want Kirk there at all. And we come to find out that he was just one of the terms of Mm -hmm. the aliens given them the planet. Yeah. They want Kirk there because he's the Trump card. Oh, right for the federation like they know they know that if kirk is there hopefully they can keep him from being a problem like they kind of control him from coming up with a way to uh you know end things for them and so yeah i mean yeah it was it was not like i think the ideas behind all of that were interesting but it felt like it needed some refinement overall plot wise to bring it further together because like, as we're kind of talking about these elements, some of them are really good and some are interesting or whatever, but it doesn't feel as holistic. Like just we were talking on the 602 club about the Hawkeye show on Disney plus. And like, that's a show where all a lot of the different characters and a majority of the different thematic elements are all being experienced from different perspectives all at the same um, time and throughout the entire series. So it makes things feel much more cohesive. And this is a place where it's like, I can tell they're trying to do that, but I don't necessarily feel like it's working in the way that it needs to. Well, and they I feel like it was a missed opportunity too with, I don't, I didn't actually mind Julius being like the little brat that he was. And Alexander was kind of, um, he he was, I, I mean, it turned out that he was just more uh, unsure of himself, I guess, as a leader. And I, I feel like, because I, di- I would have been really upset had both of these Kirk kids been like the golden children, just super smart and successful and everything. And so I liked that, you know, Alexander was trying to do something for the greater good. Julius was trying to do stuff to help Alexander, but like was just going to do anything he could to get him there. And I feel like we almost have like an, you know, we could have had an id ego, super ego situation with like Julius representing the id, just wanting to go out and get whatever he wants, whatever, like however he wants to get it. And then 
Alexander being the ego, but then Kirk being kind of the super ego that like tries to, you know, control the two of them and bring them together to work together and everything like, you know, kind of and, and bringing his life lessons to them, his leadership skills and everything to show them how to lead this. And, and by example, like leading by example too, not like by butting in during negotiations or anything like that, but just being the sage advice giver, I guess. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And, you know, one of the most interesting parts of the book, I think was the whole, I was just thinking of it in terms of like hate leads to suffering and the, how the Huani have, it's discovered um, and it, it's finally uh, brought to light that they had enslaved the Florians um, and how their shame has just kind of led them to live in denial. And that denial has also led the Florians to harbor this hate against them for so many years that is just built up and built up and built up until this point where this plot could literally lead to the death of billions of people and strand an entire galaxy without the opportunity to travel from one place to another by warp. Like, it's hardcore. Um, and I, I thought this was an interesting part of the story. And I wish I felt like this is another place where I just wanted just a little bit more refinement um, because I, like I love when Kirk tells Scully, he's like, you can't heal what you don't acknowledge. And there's some really deep stuff here. Uh, but and I think this should have been almost like the the crux of the issue in the book. Um, and it's not. And that's frustrating. But I do think there's some really good stuff here about, you know. We've got to, we can't sweep our history under the rug. We got to know what it is and we got to be able to deal with it and we got to acknowledge it so that we can deal with it together and then find a way forward. It's, you know, so it's not just about wallowing in the past. It's about finding a way forward. Yeah, this is my favorite part of the book. Uh, You know, it really hits home to some things that I've heard recently today in society, in the news, and also things in the past. And, you know, we we have a situation where mistakes are made in the past, and we ourselves may not have made those mistakes. It was our ancestors. But we shouldn't have to take the burden of, oh, well, that was that was something my ancestor did, so let's just sweep it under the rug and just pretend it didn't happen and move on. And that sounds great and wonderful, but from the other side, it's like, you can't not acknowledge it. You know, you have to acknowledge that it happened so that we can heal and understand that you do regret it and don't be ashamed to say anything about it. And that's what, you know, the Huani, they were ashamed to say anything about it. And no, you should say about it. And say, you know, hey, yeah, we apologize for what our ancestors did. It's not us. But we understand. We know what was done wrong. We're not going to repeat that. We know that you have pain and, and and you're unsure of how you think we're going to treat you and such because of things in the past. But we want to assure you that we acknowledge what happened. We point to what happened. But we're not going to be that. We're not that anymore. And so we understand. And that's what it eventually got to. But I really enjoyed that part of the story. Yeah, that was it was it was probably my favorite part of the story as well. And 
Yeah. I mean, like you both have said, if, if we don't acknowledge the past, we really can't learn from it and we can't move past it. And, um, and, and it's more than just apologizing too, because Scully even um, apologizes, you know, just for her own, I think um, her own mind, I guess, it, you know, and even um, I, I can't remember the guy's name, Lasan or something like that. He, he's like, what you think it's all better now because you said, sorry. And she's like, no, but I figured I, I needed to say it and you needed to hear it from me. And even he, like the Florian, kind of has a moment of he kind of holds back for a second, like he he is affected by this, and I mean that's that's what needed to to happen to at least get some sort of uh, discussion started between them. Because yeah, there was there was a lot of pain, and no, it's not just going to take a, a oh we're sorry, you know, welcome home, you know, like that's it's not it's not that simple, but like it's a start, you know, and, um, yeah, I wish they, I wish they had taken more time with it because, um, especially when he's talking to the Federation president and, you know, he's like, Oh, you guys don't know about these racial issues. And then a couple of the admirals are in there like, uh, yes, we do. And it was kind of, you know, the bonk bonk on the head message moment, you know, like, Oh, we had racism on earth and we don't anymore. And we've moved past it and you can too. And, um, this, you know, this PSA has been brought to you by GI Joe or whatever, like, <laughs> you know, and, and it was, it was just a little, it wasn't a little heavy handed. It was a lot heavy handed and, and it was just because they needed to, I think, to move the story along, but it's like, this could have been a, a longer, um, I don't know, a longer discussion, a longer mm-hmm. pl- plot point. It was an important plot point that was the underlying issue for the entire story, like why the Florians want to do what they want to do. Right. And it was just kind of glossed over a little bit, you know, wish they would, I wish that the author would have spent a little bit more time with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I mean, yeah, it is interesting because, you know, you do see, and obviously uh, the, the two admirals there, you know, they have no experience with this whatsoever. They just know well the history, right? And so they are able to speak into that and say, hey, yeah, our, our people specifically had those issues hundreds of years ago on our planet. Um, but we didn't sweep it under the rug and we dealt with it, right? And that's what has allowed us to be where we are today. And so, like you said, it is, it's, it's a great moment, but it does feel like it is just a way to like kind of get the story moving instead of being able to dive a little bit deeper into the subject, which, you know, again, is a little bit disappointing. So, um, but yeah, I, I think it sounds like for all of us, this is really was the most interesting and um, best part of the book so far. So I do want to ask you, there's a couple other things that I just was interested in and how did you feel about this whole day and a year thing? Because, yeah, I'm, I'm just just go because I I I don't know. It feels weird. Yeah, the entire time that kept coming up, it felt like before it really connected in the story, which it never really connected in the story very much. But like once Spock got involved with this Klingon ship, it, it just seemed like a way to shoehorn like you know basically get spock and who is it spock over and mccoy to this mm-hmm. planet so we could actually have our crew comes together at the end you know like it just didn't seem like 
it seemed out of character, I guess, for the chancellor, like Chancellor Azetbert, to to do this. Because otherwise, why would we have not heard about this during Star Trek Six? Since you know, like she said, or uh, Kirk saved her life, and you know all this stuff. Like, mm-hmm. I I don't know. It just seemed a bit contrived. Yeah, I mean, it does. It doesn't bother me that we hadn't heard it before or didn't get it in Star Trek Six. Um, but it did see seem a bit of a stretch to try to yeah get Kirk involved. And yeah, I'm I'm still a little confused because he he didn't accept it, but yet. He kind of does through Spock or so. I don't know. I'm confused now, too. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I, I think both of you have just rightly pointed out. And what you kind of come away with is this plot point. We need this plot point because we need these characters to be a part of this later on. And plot point, you know, and so it doesn't feel as organic as you would want it to, to really be able to flow with the rest of the story it does kind of feel like something almost outside of the rest of the story um and it shouldn't feel like that because it you know it it does become an important piece of why these characters end up in that place in the end so yeah um it it's just not as clean as it could have been which i don't really think we should we really needed the klingons now that we're talking mm -hmm. about well, I mean, yeah, they only come in because they're connecting Spock and, and like, give them a... W- it gives Standing Crane a way to enact help to Kirk without getting the Federation involved. Which didn't so, make sense since they had a Federation colony on this planet. They were Federation citizens. Mm-hmm. So the fact that she turned Spock down from sending a Starfleet ship there in the first place... It actually seemed kind of counter to what Starfleet would have done anyway. Yeah. You know, when they say somewhere in the book, there's like tens of thousands of ships out there. You tell me they can't spare one to go to Sanctuary just to double check. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's got to be one in the quadrant somewhere. <laughs> yeah, it is kind of weird. So, well, I mean, is is they're saving the universe one more time. Um, I guess, you know, as the last hurrah, the last roundup. What did you guys think of it overall then as their kind of final mission together? Because, you know, right after this, the book ends with Kirk putting on his uniform to go to the Enterprise B. I um I got uh, flashes of Michael Burnham and the burn from Star Trek Discovery season three throughout this book. Uh, yes, the whole, maybe uh, that's where they stole it from. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> you know what the whole, like their, their dilithium is going to be destroyed, which is what happened in the burn. And actually I almost would have rather seen something like this happen in, in discovery. Um, but you know, the way they end up saving the universe again, was that I actually kind of like, like the end of the book for me kind of picked up and, um, I mean, it went incredibly fast. Like they, they spent very little time like getting through, uh, you know, they basically put up a shield and now the communications are down. They can't activate this, these nanoprobes and everything. Um, but in the end, I mean, we knew that they had to destroy the nanoprobes and um, I, I guess I'm just glad that they didn't leave any of the nanoprobes still sitting out there somewhere. Um, 
to potentially be picked up somewhere else. But, you know, I liked how they all worked together. I liked that Kirk, uh, you know, had the wherewithal to not destroy the entire colony. And, you know, when it, uh, when it came time to make that decision and um, honestly, like the, the progression of his feelings towards Scully, his, his, his interactions with her towards the end of the book were a lot better. He still had some of those reservations like, Oh, he almost said no, but then thought better of it because she's been so helpful. I think by that point, like he would have been just doing whatever she wanted and, you know, but um, I don't know, I guess at the end of it, I, it was ended very cleanly. I was, you know, happy with the end. It was a kind of a, a fun little adventure at the very end there. And, and it was good to see everybody and yeah, seeing, like you said before, Matthew, about uh, Chekhov going to be Sulu's first officer. And yes, that's the story I want to see next. I liked it. I, I liked the, it better towards the end. It got better as it went along, I think. And because they found a way to save the universe. And yeah, there's things that are similar here with the dilithium that's like we see in Star Trek Discovery which is funny to me because there's a statement said later, like, gosh, can you imagine if this were to happen? And I'm thinking, well, yeah, in several centuries, it will (laughs) something very similar to this. And the fact that this is their last hurrah, their last mission as a group, did it satisfy me as being their last? Not really. I like their last being the undiscovered country better than this being the last thing that they did together because it wasn't all that to me, because if you're going to do the last hurrah, I'd rather them all be there together from pretty much mm-hmm. the beginning instead of waiting to the end. Um, but I mean, I, I do like Kirk's decisions of, you know, we have to, yeah, it's not about just stopping this from happening, but potentially, you know, pot- uh, stopping any potential of it happening in the future. Somebody on the technology. So the nanoprobes have to be destroyed and, so we couldn't just destroy the station or the machinery that c- controls this. We have to get everything destroyed and convince these two societies to form their issue, you know, rectify any issues they've had with each other so we can get the codes to stop. It. And it seems very Kirk-like when, and then when Spock comes in and saves them at the last minute, you know, all those things feel very Star Trek. So, I mean, yeah, I like how it ended, but not necessarily as this is their last roundup. Yeah, I honestly can't add anything to that. I think you said it exactly how I was feeling, Bruce. So that it leaves me with a, a, you know, only one question is what would you rate the last roundup? I was uh, really struggling because I, you know, Goodreads only allows you to do the whole stars. And I I didn't feel this necessarily was a two star book for me, but I, I was kind of in the two and a half range. Um, the, the nuts and bolts, the meat and potatoes of this story are, are good. I feel like that it just, the execution wasn't great for me. Um, so I, I actually rounded up to a three stars cause I, did, I don't feel like it's, it's bad enough, I suppose, to be a two star. So I, I gave it three out of five atmospheric shuttles, uh, that, that can't go up into space. I'm with you on this. Um, you know, I, I was enjoying it as I was reading it, but then when I got to the end and we're discussing it, I just realized there's just some things that 
bother me a little. It's just, it's just not quite there. I don't like how Kirk was handled at the beginning of the book and his nephews were kind of driving me crazy. But as it went on, it got better for me, but it just, it just feels like it's, it's not quite there yet. Like it, it, it can, it needs a little more work to me to, to really work better, but it wasn't that I didn't enjoy it. And I read it pretty much in two days. So it wasn't like mm-hmm. I was struggling getting through it. It, it was flowing. It was going well, but you know, anytime you take any of our crew members off of a ship and you don't have them on the enterprise, it doesn't usually work as well as when they all are serving together on the enterprise. So outside of all that, I would just say that, yeah, Interesting story, interesting concept to try to play with, but uh, didn't always work for me. So I'd give it three Starfleet ships that are within range of the planet. Nice. Uh, I, I mean, I'm right there with you guys. Um, I would probably say this is like, I mean, if I was being really technical, it's like probably two point five, two point seven five. Um, because yeah, it's not a three really, but on good reads, it's a three. Uh, and for everything that you mentioned, you know, uh, and I think really it just doesn't all coalesce into one cohesive thematic work the way you would want it to. And Bruce, I think you kind of nailed this when it, when you're doing this kind of story, if it's going to be a last hurrah for this entire crew doing a story, it has to feel better than the undiscovered country. And this doesn't. So uh, I'm right there with you guys in this. So, I mean, if I was going to do a last hurrah, I would have it more of a, uh, a, a real sequel to the undiscovered country. Mm-hmm. What happens with the Klingons after this? And it's all about the relationship between the Federation, the Klingons and how this crew steps in to bring them together from those events. Well, as we hit the last hurrah with this episode, guys, um, this was so much fun, and uh, we've got some great stuff ahead of us, as we talked about. We've got some um, brand new books coming out, and of course, uh, we're going to be uh, continuing and actually, uh, Bruce, I think really finishing the big last major piece of us talking, uh, we're going to be doing Brinksmanship coming up, um, and then... We're going to be starting some uh, fun different series as well. Uh, we're going to do New Earth as well as uh, Left Hand of Destiny and uh, some other things like that. So, uh, you know, we're going to work in some Enterprise books as well. So, guys, stay tuned. Um, Literary Treks has a bunch coming at you uh, this year. But, uh, goodness, Casey, uh, love that you're here on Literary Treks these days. And so where can people catch up with you? When you're not here or, you know, at least trying to beg off a place to sleep in the green room with Dayton. <laughs> well, yeah, he, he made some room for me on the couch. So it's, oh, it's been good. nice. Yes. Uh, well, yeah, you can find me pretty much anywhere at Knitting Trekkie. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, uh, Goodreads, Letterboxd. I don't post very much on Twitter anymore or Instagram, but very active on Letterboxd and Goodreads. I try to be anyway. Um, I'm also, uh, in the Babel conference from time to time, making comments on things. And then I'm also on another podcast called Mickey's Marvels that I do with my friends, Chris and Pat, where we talk about everything under the Disney umbrella. And Bruce, where can people find you? 
You can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. That's Admiral with the underline Rex. And you can also find me on Goodreads. I'm also out there on Facebook. I'm in the Babel Conference. I may not be posting, but I'm reading. I'm there. You can find me in there somewhere if you just reach out. And you can find me on the Positively Trek podcast with Dan Gunther. And yeah, we talk about Star Trek stuff. And, you know, usually in a positive manner, unlike what I was doing on this show today. But, you know, <laughs> we can still criticize things and still be positive. And then I'm also occasionally on the Star Wars Report podcast. Well, you know, I do have to say, I think... That's one of the beautiful things about, you know, this show. We might not always be positive about something, but we are going to try and be positive in our criticism about why that's the case. And so we're never here to just tear things down, which uh, I think makes for great conversation together. And of course, you could find me all over the place under the name Matt Rushing Zero Two, Letterbox, Twitter, Vero. Instagram, all that stuff. I'm also on Goodreads, as is the entire show. You can find our community over there uh, for the Literary Tracks group on Goodreads. Uh, and you, of course, find me here on the network and that whole other side of the network where we don't talk Star Trek. We talk about all the other fandoms we love in the 602 Club. And, of course, we've got the bonus shows going on, like Snyder Cuts and Assembling Avengers. You can also find me talking a lot more star trek with the orb as well as warp 5 the orb where chris and i are talking deep space 9 and warp 5 where we're walking through every single episode of enterprise to celebrate the fact that it turned 20 years old last year so very fun and you can also find me over on the nerd party network doing a couple of shows one is a finished show i did with drea kaufman we talked about every single chapter of the harry potter series one chapter at a time on owl post and the one and only John Mills and I talk about Star Wars on aggressive negotiations. But thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.